This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. The New Zealand Young Writers Festival celebrates the cutting edge of contemporary literary practice in Aotearoa with performances, workshops, conversations, markets, social events, and more. The festival is funded by Dunedin City Council and Otago Community Trust. This live recorded podcast is brought to you by Otago Access Radio and supported by Dunedin UNESCO City of Literature. Getting our feet wet. Storytelling for sea level rise. In the face of rising sea levels, how do we engage our writing practice with the world around us? In this episode, researcher Zoe Hine will be joined by Hana Pera Aoke, Jordan Hamill, Robin Marie Pickens, and Kerry Lane to discuss their practice. This event was sponsored by Auckland University Press. Kotakota. Welcome to Getting Our Feet Wet, a sort of panel discussion and a little bit of a workshop um, about sea level rise and climate crisis and other crises that we find ourselves in right now. Um, I'm Zoe and I'm pretty excited <laughs> about this and um, particularly about the um, work that these um, lovely people are going to present to you in the next wee while. Um, uh, I have come down from Ponathie, Wellington. Um, I am doing some research up there into storytelling and sea level rise, so this is sort of my world at the moment, um, but it's pretty, um, yeah, it's kind of nerve-wracking but also nice to me in a different place. First up, I will introduce um, our first speaker, which is Hannah, um, and while um, they get ready to talk, I will find the introduction, which is also <laughs> on my phone. <laughs> um, so, um, Hannah Pera Aoki is from Nati Hinirangi me Nati Rokawa, Nati Mahuta, Tainui Waikato, Nati Waiwai, Nati Wairangi, Waitaha, and Kati Mamoi. Um, they are an artist and writer based in Te Roto Pateke o Te Poti. Um, Hannah co-organises Kate Pai Press with Morgan Godfrey and published their first Puka Puka. A bathful of Kawakawa and hot water with Compound Press in 2020. I believe we have books from, we both, we definitely have a bathful of Kawakawa and hot water, and maybe we have some books from Katie Pie Press as well for sale over here. Um, um, and Hannah's work has been published in Granta, Running Dog, Overland, Art Now. Wasafiri, Cordite, and a number of books, and are in a number of books, including the Material Kinship Reader. Over to you, Hannah. I'm not going to stand up because I'm eight months pregnant. <laughs> um, kia ora koutou katoa, uh, nā mihi tuatahi kia kaitahu me waitaha me katimamoi whanui. Me mihi ano huki i o tātou tini mate, no reira haere na mate, haere, haere, haere atura. Uh, me mihi ano ki akwe te rangatira Zoe, me Robin, me Kerry, um, Kerry, Kerry, <laughs> <laughs> me Eliana, um, me Alice. 
um, tēnei te mihi ki a koutou, uh, ki a koutou nga mā tāwaka, no mai hari mai ki Aotearoa Young Writers Festival. Um, kia ora, thank you for that introduction. Um, I'm going to read a kind of an essay-ish, but not a whole essay, just parts of it. And if I go for too long, just clap or <laughs> make a sound. Yeah. <laughs> oh, what did I do to my phone? Hang on one second. The argument for not having a child is often centred around the limits of growth and how, with an expanding population, the world does not have the resources to accommodate this growth. The population growth rates vary across the world, with many countries experiencing low fertility rates. It's interesting that if you look at where there continues to be the highest level of population growth, it's the poorest parts of the world with the lowest carbon footprints. Whereas in the Western world, we have lower birth rates. People are living longer as those aged over 65 are the fastest growing demographic. While the falling proportion of working age people in many countries is putting more pressure on an already fragile social protection system. In 2020, New Zealand recorded the lowest birth rate on record. According to Statistics New Zealand, the Otago and uh, Wellington regions have the lowest fertility rates in the country, despite being regions with a large percentage of the population being people within childbearing ages, due to being areas with large tertiary providers. The birth rate statistics for Māori are becoming more aligned with Pākehā in that they too are decreasing, although it's notable that Māori have children earlier and, and often for a longer period. This makes me think of something that former co-leader of the Māori Party, Tariana Turia, said in 20, 2004 at a sexual and reproductive health conference that maybe one of our policy goals in the Māori Party should be to go forth and multiply. <laughs> I try and imagine this as a policy in comparison to other government policies in the world, in other parts of the world, such as China's one-child policy or the, first, the forced sterilisation of Native American women over a 60-year period following the passage, uh, six-year period, sorry, following the passage of the Family Planning and Population Research Act of nine, uh, 1970. Following the passing of this act, it is estimated that 25% of native people, mostly women of childbearing age, were sterilised, but there is mounting evidence that this rate is actually even higher. Many philosophers, such as Donna Haraway, have made the argument against having children in a warming world, but I am not convinced by her argument around the growing population making the planet unlivable. It feels, it, I feel it echoes harmful ideas such as humans are the virus uh -huh. narrative being extolled during COVID-19, particularly after the doctored video of dolphins in the Venetian Channel was shared widely. That river is disgusting. There's no way that there is dolphins in there. Sorry. <laughs> this sets a tone for dangerous genocidal language, such as that posed by a number of white supremacist terrorists who make the stretch of an argument that genocidal violence against immigrants and people of colour for environmental reasons. Indeed, the Christchurch shooter identified as an eco-fascist and described immigration as environmental warfare. 
This posturing belies his real intention, which is to reach at at any means to convince people that Muslims and brown and black people are destroying the world. Environmental concerns and so-called population pressure are just a convenient cover. Uh, Water is a pressing issue amongst all indigenous people. It is an ancestor, it is life, it is a god, and it deserves to be treated as such by all of us who share the world together. For those of us who birth children, uh, we carry our babies in water. In Māori, we call it wainuiatia, or the amniotic fluid, which describes how our babies come forth into the world on a wave of water. As scientist, professor, and member of the Potowatomi Nation, Robin Wall Kimura once wrote, being a good mother includes the caretaking of water. This is why ongoing actions such as that of the kaitiaki in Putiki Bay in Waiheke Island and the movement of Stop Line 3 in northern Minnesota are so important. The latter of which indigenous activist Winona Laduk of the Ojibwe Nation cause an ecological disaster. Uh, before an ultrasound scan, I drink approximately two litres of water and desperately need to go to the bathroom, but we are running late. We are seen immediately, and the very young ultrasound technician asks me to lie on a cold, dentist-like chair as I slightly undress to give her access to my engorged puku, which feels like a boiled egg. Her skinny white hand is covered in veins and freezing as she rubs a slimy goop over my womb and that reminds me of aloe vera. She presses hard on my uterus, revealing a cloudy image that she says is my baby, just to me it looks like an alien that refuses to stay still. (laughs) Everything is normal and healthy and the baby's heartbeat reminds me of a stopwatch or that of a panicked bird. It's hard to feel frustrated at this little fleshy, cloudy ball that has made me sick with a condition called hyperemesis for the last five months and has made me crave cheese rolls, maple syrup, crackers and plain (laughs) pasta. When we get home, I ask my partner to help me weed our front garden. My head is too full of anxiety and I need to do something practical. While we dig through the soil, we find more and more flowers, even some potatoes hidden by weeds. I think of those who once lived in this house and who would have planted them, and that life and the life that continues to grow under our feet and all around us, however much we might think it's the end of the world. As Māori, we carry our past into the future. Um, we walk backwards into the future with our eyes fixed to the past. This is why the word hapu means to be both pregnant and to belong to a group of people of whānau to whom you have a web of whakapapa to. Being hapu to me means carrying the bodies of many people living and long deceased. It makes me think of Joy Harjo's poem, Remember. Remember your birth, how your mother struggled to give you form and breath. You were evidence of her life and her mother's and hers. Remember your father, he is your life also. Thank you. Okay, I believe Kerry next. <laughs> I'm in charge. I'm in charge. <laughs> Great. Um, Kerry Lane is a poet and playwright from Otopoti with a patchwork background of writing, science, and performing arts. Um, current projects include a hybrid collection about the mechanics of memory and, ex- and an experimental fusion of poetry and formal academic prose, which I'm very interested by. Um, over to you, Kerry. 
Thank you, Zoe. Okay, I've got three poems. We'll go with three. Um, this one's called Seaside. No silver in the Pacific up here. Outgrown cells scatter the beach, the waves like bodies on bodies on bodies, the foreground sheets of new mudstone. Gull chicks on the cliffs, tourists with their vans, seal skulls on the beach. I'm crying, or about to, or just finished, and the rain is hammering down, fuzzing the hard line of the horizon. Winter this year was the usual, except everyone was afraid to go outside. Everyone hit their face. I worry often that I'm better at loving from a distance. I'm not ready and not at peace with it. I'm trying to get a sense for the size of things. I want to line up the gaps in me with what made them. I want this to be more than a list of unremarkable things. This year has been small and still. This year has been yawning massive. I want this to be more than it is, but this year has been so strange in scale. I have a new job. My grandfather is dying. It feels as though the world is ending. None of our tomatoes fruited all summer and sunrises are breathtaking and a royal spoonbill has taken up residence in the tidal pools where I walk, further south than he should be. Time stopped and started, came and went. I wrote until I didn't. I cooked us dinner until I didn't. Heard my voices until I didn't. The water in the harbor has been unusually warm all year. Maybe encouraging the spoonbill. There's more raptors than I remember from childhood, but fewer insects. My grandfather has been at it so long I don't remember a time I was sure I'd see him again. And I'm young enough that this all has been happening forever. Steve wanted a sky burial. He fought for it, even though we don't do that here, and never have. The eagles followed the moor into extinction hundreds of years ago, and the biggest carnivores still left hunt rabbits. And the cancer ate most of them before the end anyway. There was a kahu tied to a rope perch at the front of the chapel, trying to flow out the door into the rain. The bird left the service in its handler's car, and after some discussion, we buried Steve on the hill where he used to walk his dog, where he can see the sea. <laughs> and this one's called Table Tennis. I can't concentrate long enough to think about the fact that I can't think. I feel everything at once. I got my foot caught in a rabbit hole walking through Cromwell after you shouldn't have done that. <laughs> you drink too much. There were photos of his parents and sister all through the house. And when we arrived late, there were hearts in the oven, one each stuffed with breadcrumbs wrapped in foil. And it's these images that make me concerned I'm doing it all to serve a personal narrative. <laughs> we went hunting, five of us, and caught nothing, and ate takeaways on the floor of the lounge instead. There were caves in the hills. James and I climbed the rickety tower above the vineyard and took photos of the others waiting on the ground. 
This is out of order. Time passes in globs and strings like mold or menstrual blood. And I've given up taking it personally. <laughs> How can the world be at once so loud and so yawning quiet? The trail of breadcrumbs is non-existent, so maybe I'm doing some part of this wrong. I don't know that this is the right story for summer wine country. The boys caught the sun while we wandered through the grapevines with the rabbit guns and through the hills with the other things. This happened some time ago, but it seems to me this whole century has had burning on the mind. Up central, you could smell it on the wind coming off the lakes and the glaciers. I'm fairly sure this was all some time ago now. on the it is crying, <laughs> I'm crying or I'm about to every time I engage with these sorts of pieces of writing or hear people read them that it's definitely, I'm definitely crying or I'm about to cry or I will be crying <laughs> um, especially with these beautiful pieces okay, um, Jordan Hamill is a Pornicky based poet and performer um, he is the co-editor of the Lockdown Lit Journal Status Status. Status. Yeah. And a co-editor of a forthcoming climate change poet anthology to be published by Auckland University Press. Nailed it. Yeah. Perfect. Good to you. Oh. Uh, it's good to be here. Um, it's my third time at this festival. Uh, I love it so much. Um, I always have such the best time. I've met so many of my favourite writers and people and friends here. And I'm just yeah, really thankful to Ali and Gaz and everyone who put this, put this all together. Um, and to these other amazing people who I get to share stage with. Um, I just have one poem. I thought I would read something that was published down here since we're in the south in landfall. Um, I guess it's a sort of slightly tongue-in-cheek piece about, um, I guess, the idea of sort of climate change as this abstract thing, and so a thing that it's very easy to be apathetic about. I, I know I am a lot of the time. I think we all are. And as that sort of threat grows, well, the apathy kind of grow as well, especially when everyone has so many more immediate sort of barriers and challenges in their lives. Uh, yeah, anyway, uh, it's called Society Does a Collective Impersonation of Robin Williams Telling Matt Damon It's Not Your Fault Repeatedly in Goodwill Hunting. <laughs> Why do tsunamis have to be such tryhards? We get it, you're wet. Reject sincerity as a mantra, a tonic, a life raft. Reject melting pavements. Don't leave only footprints, leave dick drawings. Paint hot enough foyer on your neighbour's war machine. Reject the sunrise, it's just the wildfires, the mean girls of the forest. Take all the big yellow taxis and put them in a counting crow's museum. Never trust two sets of footprints in the sand when they become one. Carry only what your depression needs. Curate your depression into different shades of mood ice blocks made from dark web ice cap chunks. Tell everybody they're special, but not as special as you. Tell everybody about the old you. Orchestrate a small coup to get on the coup ladder. Kidnap Alanis Morissette, install her as the Minister for the Environment, exfoliate yourself with basalt and sulphur, tell everyone you're going natural, tell everyone it wasn't you, it wasn't you, it couldn't have been you, tell everyone, imply it was them, don't they know, don't they know there are microbeads in lube, they should have thought of that before they, well, you know, now we're all fucked, am I right? <laughs> Test out your Type 5 at climate marches and memorial services, defund book clubs and karaoke, Form craft circles instead. Decorate each other's coffins. If you want to write messages of support or encouragement, keep them on the underside of the lid. Read your children privacy policies and heavy machinery manuals. 
make them debate the merits of data mining versus regular mining, give the winner a discounted mood ice block, tell one person a day you love the moment in a movie when a character says the name of a movie, tell one person a day it wasn't you, tell them until they believe you, tell them until you believe yourself, only tell the sweat tunnel between your pillows your fears, whisper the name of every person you've ever cared about into the broken ceiling fan, then pray you outlive them all. Thank you. Um, Robin, um, Robin Marie Pickens is an art writer, poet, curator, and text-based practitioner. Currently, Robin is a PhD candidate, very close to finishing, <laughs> in ecological aesthetics at the University of Otago, an art reviewer for the Otago Daily Times, an art news, and an editor of Swamp Hen, a journal of cultural ecology. So over to you, Robin. Um, kia ora um, Yeah, thank you so much for being here. I didn't really know if there would be anyone. <laughs> um, and yeah, to Eliana and everyone for inviting me and um, for everyone here for sharing your mahi. Kia ora. <clears throat> Lover, I should have hailed you directly as I will be a different person by the time you sense this. How are the dunes, your children, parents, your respiration. I have been just now on the hillside with the tiny red clover mites, the trees opening themselves green and the ocean in the distance. Forgive me if this script sounds affected. I will be reading it aloud to others and this makes me self-conscious and too aware. I am now reading it aloud as if I were writing to you so that the people here do not feel too uncomfortable with the intimacy I express. Perhaps it is already too late for that. Some things we mean to share, other things we don't, and often our bodies betray us regardless. Lover, how unknowing I am, how little I know. Lover, perhaps I should be wearing a Ramones t-shirt or something hip and ironic because I am neither. I am digressing because if I were to say large swathes of, coastal areas of, at risk of, prone to, we would be in it, or in it some more, and you may feel heavy or heavier. Or, if I were to begin by telling you about my recent trip to Mitre 10 and what I bought, only to tell you it used to be a tidal flat, a salt marsh, you may feel deceived by anecdote. This tactic wouldn't work with the Forbury Park Raceway, as I couldn't fabricate a plausible reason for going there, <laughs> unless you dared me, and it involved some kind of illicit hookup. <laughs> the raceway used to be a freshwater marsh. Salt water on one side, fresh water on the other. I don't know much about the presence of salt in the meeting of water and land, but I find the relative proximity striking. Someone wrote, a little poetically, a little true, that South Dunedin was built on top of the sea. There is a famous black and white photo taken in April 1923 of a little boy in a rowboat at the flooded southern end of Normanby Street. Most people in South Dunedin do not own the homes they live in. This means that many of the owners have two or more homes but choose not to live in the South Dunedin one. 
I will reveal myself to be naive if I say, I hope they are not paying too much rent. No, that would be dishonest, as I know they will be paying too much rent. The salted and unsalted water that met the land was filled in with sand by Pākehā, which I think we can all agree is sadly predictable. The area became prosaically known as the Flat, then later South Dunedin. Lover, I just caught myself person-splaining to forgive me, although this is a monologue. I trust you will help me gently break it up at the end. The flat is now the single biggest community or communities in Aotearoa threatened with sea level rise. I have mixed feelings about the words community, communities, as they are infrequently applied to wealthy people. And yes, as you often remind me, lover, there are communities or constellations of beings other than humans who will be affected by rises. Often sea level rise is described in scientific literature as if the sea just decided to rise and expand of its own accord. It's like when people talk about prison ratios without talking about systemic racism or civil war and poverty without talking about colonisation and the World Bank. We know it is our actions causing the sea to rise, but we also know that we and our need a whole lot of nuancing and contextualising. Oh, I've done it again, lover, with my splaining. It's the we that use more energy and buy more things that others than others. Typically a we who is taken from other people who are responsible. It took me a long time to realise that wealthy people tend to live higher up. Lover, I took your advice. At the moment, I'm only watching shows and films set before the internet because they're peaceful, or peaceful and violent in different ways. In the 1600s, a man said, and why would you want to mark the hours in a day? And I was shook, as they say. <laughs> Perhaps we do, because there is a glass house in the high sky, and there are tipping points to monitor. Years and centimetres and degrees are triangulated. But it is not enough to say the green will storm the earth if we are gone, because so many precious ones of all persuasions are lost each day. Not so much lost, but losted, like the intentionality of disappeared. Intentionality? Perhaps losted to insufficient collective care. Lover, this is a ramble because it is vast. The connections are vast and too much for individuals to carry alone. Sometimes I just want to write, it is vast, without having to think about all the things that are vast, like loneliness or desire, which in turn could be written about differently. The gap in a forked tree instead of loneliness, or a scene involving a wolf for desire, perhaps. But these vast interconnections are like the small embedded word at the beginning of cryosphere. You see, we see why I need that Ramones t-shirt. I learnt this word yesterday with the tiny red clover mines. It describes ice environments like snow, sea ice, lake and river ice, ice caps, ice sheets, and lots of other words that involve freezing and frozen. Lover, cry, comes from the Greek word krios, meaning cold. As the cold melts, because of the greed in the greenhouse and the sea becomes fat with cry, we keep saying, be safe, my love, be safe, my loves. Be safe, my loves.
can all um, uh, oh, um, de-mask for our conversation portion. Um, I love the end of that. <laughs> um, be safe, my loves. Yeah. Um, so, firstly, I'd just like for each of you to talk a bit more about the piece you've just read. Um, maybe just for ease following this way around. Um, one of the things that really stays with me is the, I guess, how personal this time, <laughs> what personal the writing is. Um, yours is, you know, addressed to a lover. There's um, very personal things happening in um, all of the pieces we've just read. I don't know. Like decorating someone else's coffin, I would say, is a pretty personal thing to do. Um, so if you want to touch on that as well, but really you can speak to um, any part of your piece that you really want to. So I'll start with you, Robin. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I read it yesterday with, <laughs> <laughs> with the red clover mites um, yeah. for this. Yeah. Um, but I think about these kind of issues a lot. Um, and I and yeah and I guess in this context about the way we communicate them and yeah I guess just the vastness you know like um, how do we talk about the vastness and how do we not become sort of completely overwhelmed to a point of paralysis um, and I think what I'm interested in in the poets that I'm studying and in my own work is sort of that balance between telling people or sharing or um, you know saying what's going on but of course we all know what is going on so maybe on the one hand it's a lament um, it's filled with grief um, but then um, how can we bring love in, into it because I think love is important and it it sustains some of the more difficult um, aspects of you know what we're living through um, and of course again the we is nuanced and um, complex um, yeah and in part um, I was inspired by Sharon Hayes who is a lesbian queer um, artist from Turtle Island and yeah this she she does a lot of performance and text-based work and I think it's one of them is called something like um, everything else has failed shouldn't we try love or something like that um, and that in turn was taken from a protest sign in the 60s I think and anyway she stands on the street and she reads this um, poet like a, a love poem to a non-existent lover but then towards the end of the piece, um, she's saying, you know, and you, and you, and you, and the context is, you know, sort of, I miss you, I love you, and she's drawing all of the people um, and the environment um, towards her, so they kind of become a lover. Um, and I'm also quite interested in how the poet Juliana Spar, who writes quite long, digressive um, poems centered around eros or love, um, how she kind of plays with or I guess repurposes the old lyric form of um, 
like apostrophizing the lover, so writing a poem to a lover, and there's a triangle of the beloved, um, the writer, and the audience. Um, but yeah, uh, I'm, I'm really into planting trees, and <laughs> I think we should all plant trees, and um, facilitate that, and I think love's important. Um, I guess when I was writing this, I was pregnant and just thinking about, um, I guess, all of the pressures, I guess, to have children, but also all of the people in my age demographic that weren't having children. And I was thinking about all of these millionaires who, you know, like people like Bill Gates that were really anti-people, you know, always, as always, I feel like in conversations amongst non-indigenous, not like like white communities, often it it always centers around um, this idea of overpopulation rather than overconsumption, yeah. and it really frustrates me, especially when you think about like the so-called global south and continents like Africa you know you think about like the scramble of Africa and the way in which European powers just went in there and carved that place up and exploited all of the resources in that place um, the infrastructures in, in a lot of those countries aren't working um, and yet somehow it's you know, like they need to stop having as many children and it's like put on them rather than on our Western lifestyles. Um, and I guess it came sort of also as like a frustration of our own government, you know, Jacinda Ardern declared a climate emergency, but <laughs> what does that even mean? You know, um, and it's been interesting seeing, you know, um, I don't want to get into talking about Three Waters and the council <laughs> because I know this event's sponsored by the DCC. But it's been really interesting seeing people like Winston Peters refer to that, you know, that conversation as being... It was disgusting what he said about it and then kind of Kaitahu's response. And having lived in a place like... I was living in Waikawaiti recently... And we've had boil notices, like, over the years. Recently there was, like, lead contamination in the water. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. And also I just wanted to respond to you and say, I think all the time about how we're, like, every time I'm, like, in this area, we're on reclaimed land. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, you know, the seagulls that always hang out there and people get really annoyed and like, yeah. that's where they're supposed to be because that was the ocean. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. But yeah, colonization. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think I'd like to pick up on your idea of vastness and, and scale because I think that that's been what's defined the 21st century in a lot of ways is these just enormous enormous problems and everything that we're feels like our individual worlds have got a lot bigger very 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 quickly and suddenly everything that matters is happening at this like global planetary scale um, and yet 
that's not the scale of human experience. So it's the scale we're sort of being asked to think. But like what I notice is that there's there's a bird by my house who shouldn't be this far south. Like they're not usually this far south. Those are the things we see. And you, you referenced um, Robin Moore Kimmerer's work mm -hmm. and she's written a lot about this as well. Like the, the things that we see this change when we like live on and with the land and it's in like the butterflies arrive early this year or like these trees are not doing quite as well or it's in this one meadow um, and yeah I think I'm, I'm interested in like wrestling with the reality of these problems that are existing simultaneously on like such massive and such tiny scales, um, both sort of artistically and scientifically, I think as well, that like we're looking at, um, you know, microbes, microbial communities, individual organisms, like changes in fertility at the level of the individual animal. And it's still all these like huge community level things. And those are all, they're very hard to think about as being the same thing which I think is just kind of the way our minds have evolved. It's what we've had, like what we've had to cope with over evolutionary time. Um, yeah, this is sort of ongoing artistic preoccupation of mine, I guess. <laughs> um, I guess I spoke a little bit about mine already, but um, I think for me, sort of picking up on that idea of the vastness of sort of like a micro and macro scale is something that gives me intense anxiety. Like the idea of sort of scale and or like infinity or eternity and like these ideas of sort of, I guess like permanence or inevitability have always terrified me ever since I was a kid. And um, I guess I, one way I sort of have found is like a sort of coping mechanism or a way of sort of working through those has been a sort of humour or surrealism or sort of farce. Um, and I think that's something I sort of have tried to work out in my writing a bit um, and sort of using that as a means of communication. Um, and particularly when it comes to something as sort of vast as climate change, um, I think it can be a really effective method. And I think that's one thing I really like about storytelling um, in relation to stuff like climate change. And something I've noticed a lot is the, I guess, sort of range of ways that people respond. Um, and some, so many people sort of are great at sort of building a call to action or sort of telling a story, or um, sort of pointing out these really sort of absurd things. Um, and everyone has a different method, and I think everyone has a way of sort of being effective with that method, and that's something I really like about the range of all your responses, and a lot of the people who are writing about, or performing about this sort of thing at the moment. Um, and then also I think I, one thing I sort of like about this piece, and, and writing like that, is that it's not too dissimilar to what you actually see happening in the world and, and I think I was reading recently about the sort of the big oil companies trying to get their names sort of scrubbed out of the UN reports or even just looking at things like the council's like absurd responses to the free waters process and like this despite these councils who have sort of taken you know from these like fucking rivers for years against like sort of wishes of kaitiaki and exploited them and are now just absolutely indignant and you're like this is if you take a step back you're like this is fucking insane and it is silly and ridiculous and I think sort of the highlighting of that can hopefully maybe sort of help people maybe galvanise them a little bit but yeah I just mainly do it 
um, to make myself less scared, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I really want to have some time so that um, audience people have a chance to ask some questions. So I might actually only ask one more <laughs> sort of theme um, question, but maybe just picking up a bit on what you said, Jordan, and also that idea of vastness that mm. sort of repeated. And I think there's that's I would love to just write it is vast on stuff <laughs> it's done that's all really there is to say but also the vastness I mean one of the things is is that there's so much there is space and we all kind of need to be in there right like there's this is not one person is gonna hit the nail on the head and no one else needs to write a story it's like actually yeah it's vast and there is space for us there um yeah, that was a thought I had. But um, I think an interesting theme is also uh, the idea of the apocalypse. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, there was a few lines, um, kind of however much we think it is the end of the world, um, or Kerry, it feels like the world is ending. Um, and I'm going to read a poem. We go to the um, workshop bit by um, Lily Holloway, who sadly isn't able to be here they're in Tamaki, um, and that starts with a line about the apocalypse. Um, so I thought, yeah, if I'd, I'd love to know if any of you have anything to say about whether the world is ending or whether it is an apocalypse. Yeah. <laughs> you can go back in the other order. <laughs> Too big a question? I thought it's vast. Mm. You can just say it's vast. It's vast. panel of Yeah, I, I don't know what's going to happen, um, but I, I also really like writing about the apocalypse or like reading, writing or hearing about the apocalypse and I think um, I was lucky enough recently with this climate change anthology to meet up with the climate change commissioner Rod Carr and he said something really interesting where he said like he's reasonably fed up with how uh, like findings about climate change and things have been communicated recently and he's like the arts is sort of this obvious answer in terms of this method of delivery that he thinks has been crucially ignored mm. uh, and I find that really interesting um, and I don't know, like, I've managed to find so many, like, writers, performers who I love now and who I read the work or I see them on stage and, and they might be tackling topics about, like, you know, where it's going to end or about how we, how we sort of steer in the face of that and it kind of, it does galvanise you and it makes you give a shit, even if it's just for a second and it's just endorphins of being in the room or of reading that piece and then maybe you go and back your day and you forget but I think, like, that's just, like, sort of steering it down in a way which I think there's a directness to it that I really, really like. Um, and I think some of my favourite, yeah, sort of artists and writers are really good at that. Mm. Yeah. Anyone over here has? I think it. I think the answer to that question, profoundly and crucially, depends on context. Yeah. Like I don't. I think a lot of the rhetoric around the apocalypse and a lot of this ties into the sort of humans as virus stuff that you mentioned mm. Hannah it's just like scientifically it's horseshit mm. <laughs> it's utter horseshit like there have been so many massive extinction events in the history of the world we're not special like we're not <laughs> going to take all life on this planet out with us <laughs> like what we're talking about is like is our world is our society is like what we've built is eating itself basically um, and that's 
I don't know, like there's there's a lot of very sincere grief and interrogation and conversation to be had about that. But I think it's important that, like the idea of the kind of biblical apocalypse, you know, <laughs> like four, four riders, skies red, like raising everything, the rapture, end of days, like that's not gonna happen. We're a species of many on this world. You know, like we're not better than the Stegosaurus. <laughs> and I think like that's that's important to me. Like so my as you possibly can tell by listening to me talk, my, my background is very formal scientific training. And being able to carry like the grief of a species that is staring down like very, very massive changes in the way we live, in the way we organize our societies, but also life goes on. That's how, like, might not be ours, <laughs> but we're not gonna take out life on this planet. And there's, it's not quite a comfort. It's more just, we can't change that. It's, it's a, a humility, I guess. You know, nature's gonna keep going no matter what we do. That's just how it works. So. Humility is a good way of putting it, yeah. I'd say for colonized people all over the world, they've already experienced apocalypse. They've just experienced like the destruction of their worlds. Um, and they've managed to adapt and survive and like even now like you know I think all the time about the protectors in places like the Amazon that are being murdered for protecting their whenua um, that's just gonna keep happening until there's no Amazon to protect anymore um, Sorry, that's really bleak, but it's the truth. Um, and I also think that we are in like the we do have the privilege of being in New Zealand, and I think that um, comparatively to other parts of the world, we're a better placed to deal with the climate catastrophes. I wanted to pick up too what there was a line that you said in one of your poems, um, Gary, where you were talking about I'm I can't remember it was like I'm young enough. It's always been happening forever. Yeah. Mm. So it's just like, it just feel like it's just going to keep going. But it is like this thing where we have, this, this multiple crises are just like, I, I wouldn't even call it like vastness. I mean, it's vast, but it's just crises on top of crises on top of crises on top of crises on top of crises yeah. that have always been happening. Mm. Um, I think, and we're exacerbated by colonization <laughs> and just keep you know an overconsumption and you know I'll get a Noah's Ark <laughs> I hope he makes a big walker you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> great um, yeah I was also going to say um, 
um, and it is from the perspective of a reader, um, that I have read a, a lot of people saying that, yeah, for Indigenous peoples, this um, this has been lived through. Um, yeah. Obviously, we've got different coordinates in place that are um, new. Um, I guess I differ a little bit because I know how many, uh, I'm, you know, not that not to be hubristic or that human beings are, you know, of course, you know, we should, we are right to be humble, but unfortunately we are taking out a lot of other species. Um, so I think I'm, yes, nature will continue. Um, but, and I guess like maybe in millennia or whatever the word is for longer than that, um, you know, there will be mutations and developments and evolution and, and all of that. But, you know, intergenerational lives are being lost right now um, and, you know, however many a day. And, um, yeah, I guess I just sort of want to acknowledge, you know, just the passing um, of these different species. Um, and right now there are 4,000 species in Aotearoa, sorry, 4,000 types of beings um, in Aotearoa who are endangered right now. Mm. Um, yeah, and yeah, it, it is, um, yeah, I, I agree, it's just we're, we're living through and contributing to a series of ongoing crises mm. and um, yeah, colonisation has um, and imperialism have been the drivers um, for this kind of greedy kind of culture that we live in. Mm. Yeah, I want to just keep on going and going, <laughs> talking about this, um, but I am mindful of the time. Um, I think one of the things I often I guess ask myself when I'm thinking about those things is I suppose apocalypse for who um, whose world is ending whose world has already ended and I think that can expand to thinking about the loss of other species and that at the end of um, you know there are there are lizards on the west coast that literally that's the only place they live on one beach and one big storm could wipe out um, the whole species um, that's certainly the end of a world but I also think about the end of sort of other futures in the sense of deciding to whether have whether to have children or not that's like the decision not to because the world is vast and terrifying and sort of the end of a possible future um, and yeah who's determining that is it the rich white men who have done the over consuming um, I would say yes um, and, and the people who have benefited from colonisation, of which I am one. Um, anyway, so that is definitely the least light-hearted aspect of it, but I think we have probably five minutes now before, or even, yeah, five, six, seven minutes to um, just open up if any of you all have a question you'd like to ask. Um, and Aliana will help me coordinate this, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So what we'll do, just in the interest of COVID safety, is if anyone has a question, you can say it with your normal human amplification of voice, and if you need a little extra amplification, I will repeat it into the microphone, and then we can all hear it. And that's lovely. 
Does anyone have comments, questions, or concerns? Thoughts, feelings, <laughs> and or emotions? Kia ora. So just for the rest of us who are maybe not as lucky to be as close to Rushi as I am right now, uh, the question was, how can we resist in our day-to-day lives in small ways colonization and the sort of um, general force of capitalism and imperialism that we find ourselves entrenched in? Stop buying shit you don't need. (laughs) But I think also, like, I don't know, it, it seems odd to me to talk about ways that individuals can counter stuff like this. Like, it's about the way we function as communities. So, think about, I don't know, I guess like think about what kind of world you want to live in and then what kind of communities you want to live in and what can you do to make that happen rather than, you know, there being something that each individual person can do by voting with their wallet or whatever. (laughs) I want to pick up on, I guess, what you were speaking to before and this idea of love, um, I think is like a very powerful love and care and and repair. Um, There's a really great book by a a theorist named Aurelia Aisha Aizule who talks about, um, I guess, like destroying museums <laughs> um, and talking about the kind of destruction of worlds and one of the things that she talks about is actually returning objects that were stolen back to people who were colonised. I thought that was kind of an interesting way of like thinking through those ideas but also just in terms of like what does repair look like? How do we actually resolve like the tensions that already exist between those, say, like the global south and the global north. Um, but also I think um, it can start in the day-to-day, in your daily life, by just acknowledging that you're on stolen land and learning about the history and the papa of the land that you're standing on, whether that be, oh, I'm on, you know, this is reclaimed land or, like, whose land this is on. Um, yeah, and... I guess, yeah, you know, tina langa, tina tanga, maori. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. And like, um, saying something like plant trees, what I mean as I was saying that, I was thinking, well, you know, whose land mm-hmm. will those trees be planted on? And yeah, there, there will be other solutions that could be negotiated, and they might look like giving land back, um, for example. Um, Rishi, yes. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm big on this idea of um, what I'm calling, or only a couple of other people have sort of called it, um, reparative eco-poetics. And I'm looking at the ways that poets are countering apocalypse. Um, Personally, I think we all know where we're at and um, it's good, I think it's hard to forget sometimes. We know that, you know, these are um, dying times, um, but how, how can they become, you know, sort of alive and living times and, well, yeah, it's not always death. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
and I guess that's where, yeah, so personally, so I think, okay, I might sort of even dial back the word apocalypse, for example, mm-hmm. and, you know, maybe it's um, crises, mm-hmm. and then um, not to focus just on that, but I think it's like um, an affective and or emotional and kind of cognitive shift to have another sphere of the of one's being that is um, not kind of resigned to um, apocalypse as inevitable um, and so maybe it is okay well um, how can love come into this what could love do or um, what could queer melancholia do or what could offer making offerings to the earth do um, because you know we would we would uh, interact with the rest of um, nature or kin um, differently if we were placing offerings um, to beings. So yeah, I guess just maybe countering the doom and gloom or the apocalypse narratives. Because there are there are so many people all around the world doing so many good things. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Like both sort of in nature and within humanity. Yeah. We have a malaria vaccine now. Were you guys tracking that? Like, (laughs) holy shit. We have a vaccine for malaria. That is so cool. And like, that's really recent. People have been working on that for decades. Hundreds and hundreds of people all around the world. And we figured out how to do it. It's the first parasite we've ever had a vaccine for. Wow. Like, that's so cool. Shit like that is happening. Like, there's beavers in the UK now. There's a group <laughs> reintroducing links to the UK. Wow. That's incredible. Like, people are doing stuff. Yeah. There's, there's stuff happening out there. And, yeah, like, the... It's so easy to get fatalistic about it. Um, and, you know, if we're... If we're <laughs> Simplifying it down to humans who presumably want to live in a world that is not on fire and oil execs. Like if we if we position ourselves on this binary and if we all go, oh no, the world is ending. What a shame. I guess there's nothing I can do. Which of those two groups is going to benefit from that, really? So... I also understand the fatigue, though. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Um, it's really, yeah, that's why I found your work really re- relatable, because it's like, mm. it does just feel like, you know, since I was born, there's just been one thing after <laughs> another after another, and it's just not stopping, it just gets worse. But then it is like, you have to counterbalance mm. that, because we need to have hope, yeah. we need to have love, we need to, you know, we yeah. need these things to survive and yeah. make the world a better place for Pippi. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think we could finish that part on that note. We can all agree that, well, yeah, there is hope, there is space to care for each other and to attempt repairs. Um, and we're all here for it. Um, <laughs> I am. 
<laughs> I'm open for recruitment. Um, we have about 20 minutes, and um, I was encouraged to leave some space for book buying over here. Um, so what we're going to do now is I'm just going to check whether you all might like to actually, are you happy to sit on the stage for the next 15 minutes? Yeah, Chairs good. are very comfortable. Okay, perfect. Then I shall leave you where you are and continue. Um, so the idea is to spend sort of 15 minutes just doing a little bit of your own writing or drawing um, or just meditating, thinking, if that's what you're um, wanting to do. We we'll provide you all little notebooks um, and pens. And if you'd really like some coloured pens, uh, maybe you can wave your hands up and we can um, get someone to provide you some. Um, there are a list of sort of prompts if you need anything to respond to, but actually, like, how much have we gone over? There has been... Just choose your own. Um, and I am going to start... So we'll probably do three minutes and then two lots of five, just with a little break, so you can read over what you've read. Um, but first... I'm going to read the poem, Tide Rack, by um, Lily Holloway, um, who we invited along to be here, but is um, up in Tamaki Makoto at home. Um, and I thought it was really important to acknowledge their absence and the reality of the pandemic we're living in. Um, so I am going to um, yeah, read out their work as best as I am able to in their absence. Um, and then we will go into three minutes and I'll give you sort of a 30 second um, kind of, hey, we've got 30 seconds left. Um, yeah, so, tide rack. Everything is beached in the apocalypse, bathed in egg plant light as I trundle. Past lines of tide rack and lemons spitting with sandhoppers. Pink cephalopods suck armoured worms from where holes bubble and froth. Muscle pulled, thick and stubborn, I can hear their beaks cracking. Tentacles grasping, and it's painful to see through their pellucid skin. When I look again, now closer to that line of debris, fluorescent seaweed are strands of thin balloons. Blues and yellows, simply twisted, and segmented, overlapping scuttlers. A carrier crab with an urchin settled on it, its carapace, an offering or Mardi Gras hat. People have written cryptograms with sticks just under the surface of the water. Tic-tac-toe and boxes made of scallop shell preserved in the stillness of it all. The sand path around the cliffside grows thin and I walk like there's less gravity in a jacket that rustles and clinks, pockets full of the clarity I'm bootlegging. So that, um, really, we've used our time up. Um, I hope that you enjoyed the time to write some things. Um, I certainly loved being here and hearing all these wonderful people um, share their work and their thoughts. Um, I should say some more thank yous, like thank you to um, the festival for having me and allowing me to kind of put this together as an idea, and particularly thank you to Aliana, the best, 
Um, and then, yeah, big perks at the end for these um, wonderful people. Um, Robin, Hannah, Kerry, and Jordan. Um, and... This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.